I got two questions today from our passage. We're in Acts chapter 8. The first question is uh, number one, and I haven't read the passage yet, but I'm just going to give the question first. So as we're going through it, you might realize, hey, that is a significant question. Why was the Spirit not given to the Samaritan believers when they first believed? You're going to hear this as we go through this passage. This is sort of a side question for where I'm going today, but I think it's still really, really significant to ask and answer this question. Um, When we read the text, listen for um, belief, when they believed, listen for baptized, and then listen for when the Spirit comes. The second question is this one. Who in the world, I didn't put in the world up there, who in the world was Simon the Magician? Now, there's some weird stuff in the Bible I'm just going to tell you right now. This is one of them. There's stuff that I read and it just makes me scratch my head. The fact that there's a guy that we refer to as Simon the Magician in the Bible makes me scratch my head and go, man, what is... I actually, when I was planning on preaching through Acts, this is one of those passages that I, I, I knew was in here and I thought, I, this, I'm, I don't know what to do with this guy. It's weird. Um, we're going to be introduced to Simon the Magician this week. Uh, also known as Simon Magus, and uh, actually, anybody ever heard the word simony? Anybody ever actually heard that word? Nobody? I thought somebody would have heard the word simony. That's, that's, a, that's an English word. I'm just, just curious. That's, he's kind of the root of that word. There's some other questions I think are going to arise from this text, but I think they all kind of fall under these two big questions. So even as we answer the question, who is Simon the magician, there's going to be some things that are going to pop up, and you're going to go, what? which is good. So let's read. I'm going to give a little bit of commentary as we go through, but I'm going to limit myself, and then we're going to come back to it at the end. So let's start with Acts chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 9. I've got them up there on the slides for you. You can follow along in your Bibles. Verse 9 says, no, wait wait a minute. Pause. I'm sorry. What just happened last week? For those of you that were here, what just happened last week? You remember? Feel free to cheat and look in your Bibles. Yeah, Philip went to Samaria, right? There was a great persecution broke out, and the believers scattered, and they were sharing the word of God to the Samaritans, and Philip was one of those. Remember, Philip, this is not Philip the disciple. This is Philip, one of the seven chosen servants, right? This is a regular guy, and he's in Samaria now spreading the gospel. We talked about as well last week that Jesus had initially, when he said the Spirit was going to come, he said, you're going to take this gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Samaria, this is a significant step that we're going to talk about. The fact that it's made it to Samaria, beside, I mean, for us, we go, well, yeah. But for them, this is significant. This is significant. But here we go. Verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in this city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Already, weird, practiced magic. Um, what is this magic? Was it real magic? Was it tricks? I'm not going to lie to you. I was tempted to bring a uh, magic wand with one of those flowers that comes out of it just for this part. (laughs) It gets weirder, though. Listen to the next part here, verses 10 and 11. They, They all paid attention to him. Talking about the Samaritans. They all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. 
when I, for the phrase, they amazed him with his magic, that's where I actually thought this week. I thought, I need to get one of those things where the, you're seeing they throw it down and it, like that. I, I really wanted to, when I read that phrase, go, and they amazed him with his magic. And I didn't do that, though. It just seemed wrong. But they're paying attention to this Simon. He's leading many people astray. He has some influence. This magic, maybe it's tricks. Maybe it's, I mean, he could be a complete fake. Maybe there's something to it. Maybe he's performing things that might be deemed as miraculous. Could it be, and I'm just saying right now, I mean, could it maybe, is he getting any of this power from Satan himself? I mean, could, could Satan influence and do these? I think that's quite possible. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us this aspect of what this magic was, but it's clearly something. What we know is that it's clearly enough to amaze the people, and there's clearly enough that he's, I mean, he must be aligning himself and saying that he's from God. Now, there is some uh, outside evidence outside of the Scripture that the Samaritans would refer to God by using the phrase, the power. You see that in this passage? He was the power of God. And so here's what we need to understand, that regardless of what he's doing, Simon in some way is claiming to be divine. It's interesting. It's weird. Let's see where this goes. But when they believed Philip... As he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip has now arrived, and he's preaching, and people are believing what Philip is saying about Christ, the good news. They're listening to him. This actually reminds me a little bit of the setup with the scribes, the priests, the Sadducees. There's a little bit of a loss of influence. So here's Simon. He's been influencing people. And now this new guy, Philip, comes in, and he's doing things, influencing people, believing him. I think we're going to see a really different response from Simon than we did from the scribes, the priests, and the Sadducees. Listen to what it says next. Even Simon himself, what's that next word? Believed. And after being, what's it say? Baptized. Hmm. He continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he, he was amazed. Believed, baptized, amazed. Seems like this is a bit of a victory for the gospel, doesn't it? This guy who previously is claiming to be in some way, shape, or form divine himself, leading people astray, performing things, he sees the real deal and he believes it and he gets baptized and he's amazed by these things. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem, remember they were still down there, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So word travels to Jerusalem about this outbreak of the gospel in Samaria. Word travels down. They hear about it. They send Peter and John. Think about this as an investigative discovery. So Peter and John are going to see what's actually going on here to see if this is true, if it's real, what's happening. Then something else weird in this passage. Did you notice it? Verse 16, for he, talking about the Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them. What? Need to answer that question. Goes on to say they'd only been baptized, it says. What's this mean? Let's continue on. Verse 17 
says, then they lay their hands on them. This is talking about the apostles, lay their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Again, interesting, the Spirit comes now with the laying on of the hands. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through laying on of the apostles' hands, uh-oh, Simon, Simon, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I don't know if anybody saw it, but on Facebook, I've made a fake book cover. Anybody actually see it? I made a pretend book. This isn't a real book, by the way. Um, I don't know if you can read it or not, but uh, um, how to get God to do what you want. And I put down about a messed up memoir by Simon Magus. Simon. Seemed so genuine, believed, baptized, amazed. And now he's doing what? Offering money, saying, hey, I want this power too. Can you give it to me? Peter's response is pretty severe. He says to him, Peter, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. I mean, almost literally saying, I hope that wherever... Your money goes, you go to the same place. And I think we know what he's referring to. He says, you have neither... Now, this is really important. Think about how Peter says this. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. So earlier when we read about Simon, the the, the truth has now come out. Peter says, you don't have anything to do with God. You have neither part nor lot. That's what he's saying. Then he says this, repent, therefore, this is of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This is Simon's reality. This, this phrasing, gall of bitterness, bond of iniquity, these are Old Testament ideas, meaning that in the roots of your heart is this root of sinful bitterness against God. It's rooted in there. This is deep. Simon, what, what we're seeing in you, Simon, is something deep. Verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So as they returned to Jerusalem, they're preaching along the way to the Samaritans, now obeying God's command to take the gospel to the Samaritans as well. Now, let's answer these questions. Let's go back to the first one. Why was the Spirit not given to the Samaritan believers when they first believed? This is an important question to answer. I'm just going to tell you right now, this is, for, for me, I could, I could get bogged down in this question because this one is, has deep theological significance. Why was the Spirit not given to the Samaritans, the Samaritan believers when they first believed. They believed, it says they believed, it says they were baptized, but then it's not too late. In fact, the apostles say, we realize the Spirit hasn't been given to them, and so then they lay their hands on, pray for them. Entire denominations have sprung off of how this passage is interpreted and how it's understood. I think it's so important not to mishandle Scripture. Would you agree with that? Don't mishandle scripture. Don't 
I heard the phrase this last week, cherry pick, right? Pick this one up and build everything off of this one thing. But in fact, let me put it this way. I believe it's so important to interpret Scripture with Scripture, yeah. So we, we read this, and, but we, we don't just take this and, and run with it. We go, well, what does the rest of the Bible say? Sometimes when we get to things we don't quite understand, it's important to just take a step back and go, what does this mean? How does this relate to other things that I've learned and heard? We must interpret Scripture with Scripture. Like I said, I could get bogged down in this question because it is theologically significant. One of the reasons for that is because we believe, and I've taught for years, that one of the things that happens as soon as you become a believer is that the Spirit of God is given to you in fullness. So some might read this and go, well, Matt was wrong. Okay? We believe that the Spirit of God, and I still do believe, even with this passage, that the Spirit of God is given to believers at the moment of salvation. In Ephesians, the Bible says that the Spirit is given as a seal guaranteeing your inheritance. We didn't see the apostles having to do this with other believers before. Did you notice that? I mean, this is the first time this has happened quite this way. Did the apostles have to go around every single time somebody got saved and lay their hands on so they got the Spirit? So far, that hasn't happened. In fact, as we go on, we're only going to see one other case of this quite like this. But then after that, in fact, what's interesting is that when you start looking in the book of Acts, you look at these ideas, believed, baptized, Spirit-given, they're always jumbled around. There's no like set pattern or order in the book of Acts. It's never like A, B, and C. This, this, this. Sometimes the Spirit comes. Sometimes there's belief. Sometimes there's the baptism and then the belief. And then the Spirit. I mean, it's just, I, I mean, honestly, when we read this, one thing becomes very clear. Have you guys ever heard of Pavlov's dog? Anybody that studies psychology heard of Pavlov's dog? Pavlov's dog. Yeah, some of you are like, I think maybe. Pavlov, okay, so Pavlov, he was this, this psychologist, and, and he, studying humans, he studied dogs. I don't get that. We're not dogs, but that's what he did. And he did find out some things. For example, and so this will, this will ring a bell, literally, because uh, um, what he would do is he would ring a bell and give the dog a treat, and ring a bell, and he'd give the dog a treat. And every time he rang the bell, he gave the dog a treat, until eventually what would happen is he would ring the bell, and guess what the dog would start to do? Salivate, like an actual physical response from the sound of the bell ring. He'd ingrained it into him. And, and what you start to understand very clearly is that the Spirit of God is not a dog that can be trained to do exactly what we needed to do at the right time. In fact, what you start to get a very clear picture of in Scripture is that the Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. He's not something that we can manipulate and get to do what we need Him to do when we need Him to do it. This is going to be a key idea in understanding this whole passage. I think that in order to understand this passage and what was going on is to understand that this is a unique moment in history. The gospel message had come to the Jews in Jerusalem. This is brand new. It's not been this way before. The Messiah has now come. The gospel, the good news has been revealed all that he is and all that he's done. And it spreads. And Jesus says it's going to go to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this step of going into Samaria is hugely significant because the Samaritans aren't in the core of what we would call Judaism. They're on the fringes. Some people would still say they're part of Judaism. like They still would say they worship the same God. 
but they had their own, like they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament and they had their own place where they said, this is where the temple should be. This is where we worship. This is what we do. I mean, they had their own guidelines on how things were done. So the Jews didn't like them because they, they felt like they'd twisted it. And sometimes the Samaritans said, we got nothing to do with them. Sometimes the Samaritans would say, we're the real rightful heirs of what God has done. The Jews are the ones that have it wrong. And so there's obviously this, this animosity between them. And so for the Jews to have the gospel now go to the Samaritans, this is significant. So I absolutely believe that what's going on here, and you base this on the rest of the book of Acts, because after this, uh, there's only one other time that happens quite like this. It's when Cornelius, the first Gentile believer, and the Spirit isn't given right away. And I think the reason is simple. It was important for the apostles to see this was the real thing. And so they believe, and this is almost like, you could almost call this like the Samaritan Pentecost, right? You remember when the disciples first you know, began to believe in what Jesus was doing after he was resurrected and they're waiting? And what does Jesus do? He says, wait for the Spirit. And then the coming of the Spirit was significant. Boom. I think what we're seeing right now is, is for the apostles and for them to be able to take this back to Jerusalem and say, no, this was, this was real. We were there when the Spirit came. So to answer that question, now it does stir up lots of other questions, but to answer that question, you have to understand that as we go through the rest of Scripture, you see the Spirit coming when belief comes. But there's twice where he pauses. And I think it's for the sake of those early Christians, those apostles, to know this is really what God wants because those apostles were Jews. And to see it spread into Samaria and then spread to the Gentiles is going to be a significant challenge for them to cope with. We don't get that. But for them, it was significant. So that answers the first question. Like I said, this is almost a side question. I think it's significant in understanding this as we try to answer the next one, which was this. Who, and I keep adding in the world, who in the world was Simon the Magician? Who is this guy? And I think what we can really add to that is, and what can we learn from him? What can we learn from this? In other words, why is this recorded? Why is this in the Bible? What's this magician stuff? What's with the magic? What's going on here, real or fake? I'm going to tell you right now, I believe absolutely that Simon the Magician was a false prophet. I'm going to quote Tony Meredith because he's my favorite one to quote when I'm studying Acts right now. He says this, While true prophets will direct praise toward God, False prophets receive praise as fuel for their own selfish egos. I'm going to pause right there. I almost, and I stopped myself, but maybe I shouldn't have. I almost pulled up a bunch of pictures of people who I genuinely believe are false prophets that are alive and well in the world today. And the books that they have written, some of them, when Charity and I go to Barnes & Noble, when we see particular books, we turn them around and hide them because... We're like, we do not want anybody to see these books. Amen. I think one of the, I, I, I put this quote up here because I think there's some significance in understanding Simon, but understanding all false teachers that's going on with Simon. There, there, there's, I think this is absolutely true. While true prophets will direct praise toward God, false prophets receive praise as fuel for their own selfish egos. And you see that with people who we would consider to be false prophets today. They, what's happening? Their ministry is booming. 
Their fame is exploding. And you even see it as they begin to do things. It's all about bringing more to them. I think that's what we see with Simon. It says, in order to keep the accolades coming, they will set people's hope in the wrong place. That's important as well. Without mentioning names, I want to tell you right now, you should not shoot for your best life now. Some of you are going, wait, I've heard of that book. If your best life is now, you're really missing out because our best life is going to be after we're dead. I think that false prophets set, cause you to set your hope in the wrong place. You see the path of Christ and you see it not a way of getting, but a way of giving, a way of suffering, a way of right sacrifice. That's the way of Christ. Not get. Not more for me, but more for everybody else. True prophets, by contrast, faithfully exalt the cross that people's faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. God's power is bound up and connected with the cross and sacrifice and suffering and death. That's the greatest power of God. Who was Simon the magician? What can we learn from him? Don't think this is it. Back to my fake book cover. I bet that would sell. You think that would sell if I wrote that book? How to get God to get you what you to do what you want? I think that would sell. How to get God to do what you want. In fact, I would not be shocked if I could have, I pro, and once again, I stopped myself from doing this, but I probably could have pulled up a bunch of books that are basically saying this in different words. I made that book cover up, though, because I think that we do all, in some way, shape, or form, struggle with this. We all struggle to one degree or another. Maybe it's extreme. Maybe it's a little bit. I think it shows itself in these ways that we, we want or need something. Maybe someone is sick. Anybody ever deal with sickness? We're poor. Anybody deal with poverty? Um, someone's passed away. We're sad. We're struggling with depression. Life just isn't going the way we thought. I think that's captured in the phrase you see some people put on their t-shirts that says, adulting is hard. Anybody heard that? Have you seen that before? That's what they say, adulting is hard. I think a lot of us struggle with that. Like what, what we thought life would be just isn't panning out the way we thought it was going to be. We want a job or sometimes we just want good children, whatever it might be. And we know that God can grant this. So we take this idea, we want something. And we, we, we tack onto it. Who's the one that can do this? Well, God can. This is the thing I want. And who can give it to me? God can give this to me. He's, we know he's got the power. Or we might know or think that the bad stuff that's happening might be because we've been neglecting him. So then we think we've got we to gotta change our game here. So what do we do? When we want something, 
and we know we really can't get it for ourselves because we've exhausted ourselves trying to get what we want. We start thinking, hmm, you know what I need more of? Prayer. I need to pray more. I need to, I need to read the Bible more. I need to give more money. I, I'm going to be honest. Here's how I do this sometimes. I have something that I want. I catch myself doing this. I have something that I, I, I want to pray about and want to bring to God. And uh, I'll sit down to pray about that. It's just suddenly it's burdened me. And I'll sit down to pray for it. But before I say it, I think to myself, I can't just come out and ask this. I need to do some praise things first. Anybody ever done that besides me? <laughs> and so I, it's like in my head, I, I'm think, all I'm thinking about is I want to ask God for this thing, but I'm like, I can't just jump right to that. And so then I start and I go, dear Lord, thank you for your grace and your compassion for me. Such a horrible sinner. And, and then I start, then, I, then things, more things start flooding to my, and some of you are smiling because you've done the same thing. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Then you see, more things start flooding. You start thinking about. Then you start thinking of things you've done wrong. And you go, Lord, I, I need. And then you start going into confession mode, and confess this and confess this. And then sometimes I've even gotten to the place where I, I, I get and I finally I don't ever even ask because I'm like I just need to read my Bible or something because I'm <laughs> I've just no uh, uh, I can't. But, but understand that there's something important happening when we're thinking that way. I think it's really, really, really important. Because I think what we, we verge into is, is, and at its heart, is the same thing as what Simon is doing. I mean, Simon, he was big and bold in the way he did it. He saw the power of God. He saw the, the power to be able to do these good things for people. And maybe Simon in some way thought, in his own self-deception, maybe he could have even thought that what he was doing was good for people. And so he's, he's, he's doing these things, and whether or not, he, who knows how it was happening, but he thinking great things. I don't know. Maybe that's what was going on. But he sees what the, the apostles do and the, the Spirit of God comes and he sees this and he goes, I want to be able to do that. And so he goes to the apostles and he goes, with money, can you give me this power? Maybe he just really did want more influence for himself. That's quite, quite possible. But regardless of the reason, the, the key flaw that we need to understand and not miss today is that there's, there's something really wrong with that. The Spirit, God, is not Pavlov's dog. We can't ring a bell or get the sequence right to get him to do what we want. The Spirit of God, in fact, is not a force or a power. He's a person. We can't rub the lamp, right, like the genie and get him to pop out when we need him. And even those things that may seem to be spiritual, now I don't want to confuse you with this, but because I think there is something when, when, you, when a need comes and you realize you haven't been right with God and that, that turns your heart back to him, there's, that's good. But where it slips over to the other side is when we start thinking, if I do A, B, and C, then God will give me this. This shows itself a lot of times when we get frustrated. We start doing the things we think God wants us to do and then he doesn't give us what we want. There's been many people, I think, in just our community that have quite often, they, they've tried the God thing, they didn't get what they want, and they went, forget it. And I'm saying this to show you that at the heart, it's, 
like this Simon. The, the problem wasn't any other thing other than the fact that they actually thought somewhere in the back of their head, they thought, I can give God what he wants so I can get what I want. Let me put it this way, because I think this is what begins to turn the heart back the right direction. We are not to seek to control the Spirit. We are to seek to be controlled by the Spirit. We're not to seek, being spiritual, reading your Bible, praying, all these things are not about doing all of the right steps and fulfilling all the right check boxes so that, so that the Spirit of God will get on our, like we need Him on our side. There's, there's all these, I have my agenda, I've got all these things I want in my life, I've got all this stuff that I really hope for, and, and if I could just get the Spirit on this page, then we, you know, these things will happen. What you see in Scripture is the exact opposite. That what we ought to be doing is seeking to say, Lord, how much more can I be controlled by your Spirit for you to guide me, for me, for me to fall in line with your agenda and your plan, your goals, your expectations, and, and taking all these things over here and just going, I, not important. At, a very, at the very heart, I think we all struggle with this. To one, like I said earlier, one degree or another, we, 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 we walk this fine line between trying to control, and we would never say it that way, control the Spirit. Well, I would never try to control God, but, but maybe you do. Maybe you do. You think maybe if I, if I do this or I do this or I do this, then God will give me what I want. And these are good things. And then you try to persuade God. It's, it's, this is good. I should have a job, shouldn't I, God? Don't you want me to have a job? Don't you want people to live, God? Don't you want people to be healthy? But, but what we have backwards is, is who's in the driver's seat? It ought not to be you. It ought to be him. The Spirit isn't a power meant for us to get the things we want. The Spirit is the power of God to work in our lives so we begin to do what he wants. I want to summarize with five lessons from Simon the Magician. I'm just going to give these off rapid fire here at the end. Lessons from Simon. By the way, I, I, I just want to mention, there, there is actually some other history about Simon we don't know how much of it's true and how much of it's false. There is some reports that Simon the magician, um, Simon Magus, actually made it to Rome eventually, still calling himself the power of God. He traveled for a while with a woman named Helen who took on the title, The Thought of God. She actually took on the title, The Thought. She was supposed to be thought embodied. Well, I don't know if any of that's true. It's sad to think about if any of it is true because of how Simon's last moments in Scripture are recorded. Let's start off with this first lesson about him. Number one, insincere faith is a thing. I, I didn't want to get too drastic or complicated with how I said this. This is a thing. At the beginning of Simon's story, he did what? There's two things. It says he believed and was 
baptized. But we know as the story progresses that neither one of those things was anywhere near the realm of genuine because Peter clearly lays it out. You don't have any part or lot with God. So the only conclusion is then to go back to this belief in his baptized to say, this must not have been genuine. There's a lot of evidence for this all throughout Scripture. In the book of James, the passage I share all the time, James uh, chapter 2, verse 14, it says, What is a prophet, my brother, if a man says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And there's significant evidence to show that it's quite possible for a human being to think that they believe in God, but it's not real. But it's not the real thing. It's not the real deal. That's important to understand. Insincere faith is a thing. Number two, signs of insincere faith will eventually show themselves. Sometimes right away. Simon's story it happened pretty quickly, didn't it? Sometimes right away. Sometimes it takes a while. Signs of insincere faith will eventually show themselves. In, in Simon's life, it showed itself. He may have seen, it says he was amazed. In fact, uh, it, when it talks about him following around Peter, it's a, it's a phrase that's similar to uh, when this, there was this lame man that was healed that it says clung to Jesus. Well, the, this is what this guy was doing with Philip. He was like right there with Philip. He's like following him around. He's amazed at what's going on. And he, you know, he believed and he got baptized. And, and I mean, and, and I think that took a certain measure of what we would almost consider humility for him to be in and of himself, this leader and this magician and performing things and people listening to him, for him to be willing to get baptized by somebody else shows that to one degree, some people might have thought, well, that's amazing that he would do this. And he did. He did do those things. But, but then we find out there was something else in his heart. And it finally came out. He wanted the power. It doesn't matter what his motives were. He wanted the power. He thought, he thought that that's how God works. If I give God what he wants, I can get what I want. If I can give God what he wants, I can get what I want. And Peter clearly describes it. He says, you are still in the gall of bitterness. I mean, the problem, Simon, that you have is deep in the heart, and your heart is not right with God. If that's how you think God operates, you've missed it entirely. I think there's been many people that many of us have known over Time. I think this is one of the ways that insincere faith shows itself. We have people that come to belief in Christ and maybe even start coming to church. But then when their life doesn't turn around and they don't start getting what they want, what happens? They taper off. There's a lot of reasons for that, but I think this is one of the biggest ones. There are many that in the pit of their heart, just like Simon, they really genuinely think, though they would never voice the words, they think, if I could just give God what he wants, I could get what I want. And so this church thing is part of that. Giving the offering is part of that. So the story of Simon is significant because we can learn these things. Number three, don't seek to control the spirit. Don't even try. Don't even think in your head just give this one up, right? Let's just stop it right now. Number four, 
Yeah, I didn't even have to say anything more about that. Instead, seek to be controlled by the Spirit. I would encourage you even possibly to wake up each day and just say, you know what, let's wipe my agenda clean. God, what is your agenda for my day? Now, you can use some of those moments. So when, when you have a need or something that you want and you desire and you come to God and you like, I want to pray about this, th- those can be amazing moments of repentance where you can sit down and go, okay, God, now I, I w- I'm, I'm tempted to think if I could just do this the right way or pray the right way or ask the right way that you'll give me the thing that I want. And so I'm trying to figure out what it is that you want. But Lord, no. And then have the words of Christ ring in your ear. Not my will, but yours be done. Still bring those requests. God wants you to do that. I mean, he says it. Bring your request in. But there has to be this heart attitude that says, this is something I want. God, I could be messed up in my thinking. This could be the worst possible thing for my life. But I I think I would like to have this. God, not my will. Please, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, please, don't ever let my will trump your will. I don't want that to happen, God. Just always please let your will. I'm bringing my request. In fact, my request being brought to you is out of submission to your will because you say bring those things to you. So I'm bringing it to you. And you may find that over time, the more and more you do this, the more and more you realize that you, you're, the, there's a submission. And you may even find, and this is, this is where, where I think this goes, you may even find that more and more you find yourself asking for the things that God would want you to ask for. Does that make sense? You may find the more you submit to him, you may find more and more that your prayers start to fall more and more in line with what the Spirit wants. Now, that's not to say when if you ask for something and God says no, that you weren't in his will. Okay? We're, we're, we're still just bringing our hearts and our desires to him, but you find that the more and more you do this, the more and more you find, God, I just want what you want. I just want what you want. I would love this, but God, you know better. I would love to have this, but God, you know, you know what's best for me. And then you'll find that after he begins to answer in those times that he says no, you'll start to go, God, you are always so much better at this than I am. You always know better what I need. And the praise will flow. Finally, and I want to close on this last point here. For me, this is one of the most significant things in this passage. Simon, who thought he could buy God and buy God's power, doesn't get struck down. He gets reprimanded. Peter tells him the truth about where his heart is at. But repentance is offered. Isn't that amazing? Repentance was offered to Simon, that that Peter says, but repent. Now, all these other stories about Simon, they might be true. We don't know. They're just stories. I'd like to think and hope, hope that they're not and that Simon turned his heart to God. I would much prefer that story. But wherever you're at in your life, whatever you've done, Even if you have thought in the back of your mind, I think I might be able to manipulate God into giving me what I want. Maybe some of you have spent a lifetime trying to trick God into doing what you want or trying to give him what he wants so you get what you want. Here's the thing. I know with absolute surety from Simon's story, there's a lesson here for you. It doesn't matter. Today is a day that repentance is offered to you. That is the good news of the gospel. 
I believe even if you've spent a lifetime of trying to manipulate God and to get what you want, today is a day that you can repent. And you can turn, and today could be a day that you walk out of here today and just say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. From this point forward, Lord, help me to keep turning back to that again and again and again. Lord, when I'm tempted to try to take matters in my, and try to control my life and my situation, Lord, I want to again and again just repent, 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 and just continue to submit to what you want. You may have to take some drastic measures. I would encourage you, if you've struggled with trying to control God, I would, I would encourage you for, the, for at least the next week, if not longer, to just take all those things that you have been asking God for and just say, I'm just going to put these all on a shelf. I mean, he knows what they are, right? I mean, it's not like he's going, what were those requests? I don't remember. You know, he knows. And take a week and just say, God, I'm not going to ask for anything but you. Just for, I just, for, just want to every day wake up and go, God, just whatever you want for me today, whatever it is, I trust you. Whatever you want for my life today, Lord, please just let that happen. He knows if there's something pressing, it's not like he doesn't know. Just leave that in his hands. Just quick start your submission to God. And take all of your requests and just say, Lord, I'm just going to leave all those to the side, and all I want this week is you, whatever that looks like. I'm going to pray, and as I close in prayer, I want to encourage you to, if you're sitting here today and you're going, you know what, that's, that's been me. Maybe not all the time, but maybe it's happened quite a bit. Maybe even as I was talking about it, you thought, I do that. I do that too. This could be a day for all of us to really reset our, our, our mental framework and say we don't want to be like Simon who's, who's thinking we can put the, with the right amount, you know, any amount. Maybe, maybe I'm just not given enough. Maybe I'm, not just, maybe I'm just not doing enough. The problem wasn't the amount of money that Simon offered. The problem was that he offered money to get God's power. And wherever you're at today, if you've been that way, today could be for you a day of repentance. To just turn your, turn your heart around and say, Lord, I don't want to be like that. Lord, if there's a root buried down deep in the depths of my being where I've been thinking I can control you, Lord, help me to repent of that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank you for this day. Lord, I pray now for all of us, Lord, that we would not buy that book, even though it's not a real book, we would not buy into that idea how to get God to give us what we want. God, I pray that today, this church, the people that are here this morning, Lord, that we would walk out of this building with a renewed mindset to say, Lord, what you want. Not my will, but yours be done. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to repent of the ways that we've gone. Lord, help us to repent in small ways. Lord, even when we sit down and pray and and Lord, help us not to think, even in those small moments, Lord, if I could just pray it the right way, maybe you'll give it to me. Or if I can just muster up the right amount of faith, then you'll give it to me. Or instead, I pray that you'd help us to have genuine faith in you that just says, Lord, your will be done. Lord, I pray this for all of us. Lord, this would be a week that you would accomplish your purposes. Lord, I think of all the things that people in here have walked into the room with that they want for this week. God, I ask that if those things fall in line with your will, Lord, I pray that they would be done. Lord, I pray that if we're asking for things that we ought not to be asking for, God, change our hearts. Lord, turn us away. 
Lord, I pray that if there's things that are not a part of what you would have for our lives, God, don't give them to us. But Lord, let your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys are dismissed.